The Battle of the Somme took place over 141 days in 1916, in the southern area of the battlefield, beyond the villages of Mametz and Montabar, as the attack continued, the British army found itself in a horseshoe of woods, a nightmare of tangled roots and smashed trees, where attack after attack took place. Having commemorated the 105th anniversary of the first day of the Battle of the Somme a few weeks ago, I thought it would be good for us to continue to look at the Somme from the perspective of 105 years with some regular episodes of doing a bit of a round-up, really, of what was happening during that month in 1916. It's easy to think the Somme, perhaps like the Normandy campaign of the Second World War, was defined by a single day, the 1st of July 1916 for the Somme and the 6th of June 1944 for D-Day and the Normandy campaign of World War II. But a battle like the Somme was long and complex and lasted for 141 days from the 1st of July through to the 18th of November 1916. And in this episode, we'll look at what happened on the Somme following that bloody first day, that black day of the British Army, when 57,000 men became casualties in a single day, nearly 20,000 of them killed in action or died of wounds. Essentially, on the Somme, what happened next? Well, one of the, the first things that people often ask about, when did the High Command really have any sense of those losses? And that's a good question, because when you look at the units that went into battle that day, the casualties, particularly amongst officers, were very, very high indeed. And the number of adjutants that were killed or wounded on the first day of the Somme, and these are the officer within a battalion, within an infantry battalion, whose job it is to write up the war diary. And so when we look at some of the war diaries for that period, they are very scant in detail, and the casualties are just estimated in some cases, it just says a rounded up number, an approximate number. And when we look at that now through other sources, like soldiers died in the Great War, which has now been digitised, and then we look at some of the higher commands war diaries, so the next step up from a battalion, the brigade headquarters diary or the divisional headquarters diary, who begin to try and analyse what's happened within their area of battlefield, we see just how big some of these casualty figures are. And of course, books like Martin Middlebrook's First Day of the Somme, looks at this in some detail. But at the time, in 1916, was the scale of loss that we now know it to be, was that apparent? Well, the easy answer is probably not. Although they knew they'd taken a beating on the 1st of July, something of that scale, nearly 60,000 casualties, would not have really been imaginable to the men on the ground, both ordinary soldiers and those commanding them. So sometimes it appears that those in commands, those from the high commands, were somehow blind to these casualties and pushed on regardless. But the reality was, you can't sit still in a battle, you can't sit still in a war, and you've got to continue. And they looked at the ground over which the battle had taken place on the 1st of July, from Gomacor, where the diversionary attack had taken place in the north, all the way down to the albert Bapome Road around La Boiselle and Ovalas, there had been very little success. A few trenches here and there, the majority of cases, the men had been knocked back and their dead and their wounded lay across the old no-man's land. To the south, there had been some slight success. So in the area around Freecorps, 
The actual village itself still remained in German hands, but the capture of it was perilously close. That would take place on the 2nd of July 1916, the second day of the Battle of the Somme. But to the south, between the villages of Mametz and Montabar, there had been success there. The vast majority, if not all, of the objectives in those areas had been taken by the assaulting units. So when it came to what would happen next, and of course when you look at the plans for the Somme, on the first day they should have advanced quite some distance from the outskirts of Albert behind the British lines up towards the town of Bapaume, which was way behind the German lines. Units like the Tyneside Scottish and Irish, for example, Pozieres, which was not taken by the Australians until some weeks into the battle, was an objective on the very first day, and they should have been sitting there on the Pozieres Ridge in the open cornfields around the Pozieres windmill, waiting for other troops to exploit the success and push on. That hadn't happened. So the realisation that that hadn't happened meant that you looked at the ground, you looked where there had been success, and you began to exploit it there, and we'll talk about that shortly. But coming back to the casualties for a minute, while the scale of it wasn't apparent, perhaps to those in the chateaus behind the lines that were core and army headquarters, at divisional level, so where a divisional commander, Beauvoir de Lisle, for example, who commanded the 29th Division in the attack on Beaumont Hamel, he would have had a very good idea of the scale of losses within his division because he had men on the ground observing the attack in the same way that uh, he'd had observers in the attacks at Gallipoli in 1915, and they reported back to him. And we have evidence of this in the war diaries, the headquarters war diaries of that unit. So it gives us an, a bit of an insight with one example as to how this information was relayed. And there the scale of losses was so apparent that both sides actually arranged a truce. Now, somebody asked on, on Twitter the other day about what was it like for soldiers to be on battlefields like this in the summer, which of course July 1916 was the summer, and be surrounded by the dead, the corpses of fallen comrades. And in that weather, of course, there would have been the terrible smell drifting off the battlefields. And how were these men buried? Now, we've spoken in, in other episodes about how at Sayre the dead lay out there from the summer of 1916 through to the winter of 1916-17 when the Germans withdrew to the Hindenburg line and it was only then that they were eventually buried. But in some cases there were truces. So at Beaumont Hamel on Hawthorne Ridge there was a truce that on the 2nd of July 1916, on the second day of the Battle of the Somme, that allowed both sides to come out not so much to bury the dead, although there is some evidence of that with bodies being placed in shell holes and a bit of quicklime being put over the top of them but more to bring in wounded and to recover things. And what you see is the Germans respecting that truce, but also using it to their advantage. One of the observers from the 29th Division staff who's there notes that the Germans take stretchers out into no man's land. They draw a, an invisible line between the British trenches and the German trenches, and on the German side they come out and pick up British wounded to be properly treated and sent back to their medical facilities and eventually, of course, to become prisoners of war. And they're using stretchers to pick up these wounded, but they're also using the stretchers to go around and harvest Lewis machine guns, which was a common practice on the Somme in 1916. The Germans didn't have an equivalent light machine gun at that point. It was just coming in, the MGO 815. 
and they quite liked capturing Lewis guns, rechambering them and using them. There's a picture in Martin Middlebrook's first day of the Somme of a column of Germans moving up towards the trenches with one of them with a Lewis gun over his shoulder. So that was going on. On the British side, we were coming out, obviously, to pick up our wounded, the stretcher bearers and RAMC, Royal Army Medical Personnel, from the field ambulances were coming out to pick up the wounded and bring them in and, like I say, recover some of the dead. But we know, for example, again from a previous episode of this podcast, Eric Heaton, who was killed, the young officer of the Middlesex Regiment, who was killed on Hawthorne Ridge on the 1st of July, his body wasn't recovered until the very end of the battle. And I have a, a memorial plaque to a soldier of the 2nd Battalion Royal Fusiliers who was in the company that advanced before Zero to capture the British side of the lip of the Hawthorne mine and he was buried on the lip of the crater once that position was captured right at the end of the Battle of the Somme in that winter of 1916-17. So with instances like this there began an inkling of the scale of the casualties and once they began to add all this up from the different reports coming in from the individual divisions that attacked from Gomacor right down to Montabar, the scale of the losses gradually came in. And, and I would guess that that sort of information was only properly disseminated in the weeks, possibly the month following the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the 1st of July 1916. So we're looking into late July, perhaps even early August, before the sheer scale of that, uh, the catastrophic nature of those losses was truly apparent and it was something that at the time of course was not generally published as a single figure this information really only came out after the war because it would have had a dangerous effect on morale so that's looking at the casualty side of it looking at what they would do next I mean you could argue that given those losses perhaps they should have given up with the Somme but we were fighting the German army to kick it out of France to end the war on the Western Front and we were not going to do that just by sitting on our hands. So when it came to the continuation of the battle in that area to the south where the units that had attacked there had made that success on the first day, capturing the village of Mametz, capturing Danzig Alley, the trench that ran towards the next village of Montabar, capturing that ground, that was the obvious place to continue. And the British Army has always had a good tradition of carrying on the fight in terrible circumstances like these and the Somme is a good example of that. So in that southern sector beyond the villages of Mametz and Montabar, what lay next? Well, there was a, a second major German line of defence along the Bazentan Ridge, as it was called at the time. Bazentan Le Petit and Bazentan Le Grand were two villages just beyond the German forward defences on that part of the Somme battlefields. There was a lot of open ground between that line and the next line of defence, but also when you looked at this southern area of the Somme, one of the things that characterised it was areas of woodland. Small bits of woodland like Bazentan wood, much bigger ones like Mametz, and substantial areas of parkland woodland around the village of Longueval, for example, which was Bois Delville, uh, Delville wood. So this next phase of the battle as it moved forward in this area would be a battle of the woods, the horseshoe of woods, as Martin Middlebrook called it. And what we'll do in this podcast is look, not at all of them, but a few examples to give us an insight into what this phase of the battle was like 105 years ago. The first of those woods that we'll look at is Mamet's Wood, 
bois de mamay or bois de mamets, as the French call it. They use mamay and mamets as a pronunciation for the name of the village. Some accentuate the Z, others ignore it. It seems to be a common practice, having spoken to the locals over the years. But for us, Mamets Wood was a big area of woodland beyond the German defences, the initial German defences that had been captured around the village of Mamets on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. It sat in a valley, a long valley, that ran from the northern side of Mamets village up towards the next village, which was bazentin le petit it was shielded to a certain degree from observation in some places, but on the high ground between Mametz and Montabar, where Danzig Alley Trench ran, there was a good view towards it. And that was essentially the front line following the 1st of July. So units were facing the woods with the wood about a mile or so in the distance ahead of them over open ground. Now, there was not a continuation of a trench system here. There were some German trenches basic trenches, not a major line of defence. There were some communication trenches, but nothing like the trenches have been captured on the other side of the village in the opening phase of the battle. But for the moment, the units stood fast there facing the wood because to their left, the next village of Freecourt was being captured by the 17th Northern Division. Now, they had attacked the ground around Freecourt at the beginning of the battle, successfully took it in the second day of operations and moved the line forward towards the next village in their operational area, which was the village of Contal Maison. And I put some maps on the Old Frontline website, uh, oldfrontline.co.uk, so you can see the area of battlefield that we're talking about. That area was the area that they continued with the fight, which then took them going from Freecourt towards Contal Maison and coming round to the northern part of Mamet, joining up with the units that had been there, took them to the western side of Mamet's Wood. And some of the initial fighting in that area involved units moving across that ground and indeed units from other divisions as well. Siegfried Tassoon, for example, was there with the 1st Battalion Royal Welsh Fusiliers. He charged across the open ground just north of Mametz towards the edge of the wood and captured a German trench on his own, for which uh, it is said that he either sat down and wrote poetry or read poetry. And when he got back to his battalion HQ, he was given a bit of a fizzer, a bit of a telling off by his commanding officer. Not long afterwards, Sassoon returned to Britain and he would remain there until he returned to take part in the Battle of Arras the following year. So this was his area of engagement during the Somme on the 1st of July he'd sat back and watched the attack go in it was him that pinned that phrase a sunlit picture of hell describing the advance around Mametz on the first day of the Battle of the Somme so there was a, a move towards Mametz Wood then and then a scheme was put in place to make a proper attack on the wood to push the line forward to exploit the ground gained on the flanks around Freecourt and up towards Contal Maison and capture the wood itself. And the unit brought up to do that was the 38th Walsh Division. Now these were 20,000 men made up of battalions of the Welsh Regiment, the South Wales Borderers and the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. They were part of the new army, Kitchener's Army, so the Volunteers of 1914. They were often called Lloyd George's Army rather than Kitchener's Army because this was essentially Wales' response to the call for volunteers in that early phase of the war. And these men came out in the late part of 1915 occupied the line up in northern France, close to the village of Levante, and served in the trenches at Fauquassart and Mauquassart and near Neuve-Chapelle. 
and acclimatised to trench warfare there and then marched down to the Somme for their first major engagement here in July of 1916. Now, back in the 80s, I was lucky to accompany a group of Welsh veterans from the division around the battlefields, uh, and that was quite an experience. And I got quite an interest in the Welsh involvement in the attack on Mehmet's Wood, and through that got to meet a veteran who lived in Wrexham called Albert Chesters. He'd served with the 17th Battalion Royal Welsh Fusiliers. Now, I mentioned Albert in the podcast that we did about Mehmet's Wood, which goes into it in more detail than we'll cover here today. But Albert was one of those incredible veterans that I met, a man that had really sort of pushed the war to one side and tried to forget about it, but got to that point in his life in which he wanted to impart that experience. And lucky for me, and I hope to a certain degree for him, lucky for him too, I came along because I could press the right buttons, ask the right questions and enable him to talk about it in a way that was meaningful, I hope, to him and certainly incredibly meaningful to me. He was a miner, he was from a mining family, he'd lost his father and his brother in a mining accident before the war, he'd never fired a rifle in his life, and when the war broke out and there was talk of the war would be over by Christmas, he thought, well, you know, I could get out of the pit for a few months, march around in the fresh air, be fed by the army, um, and then if it is over by Christmas, I'll be back underground as predicted. So he joins his local battalion, which was the 17th Royal Welsh Fusiliers, when they put a gun in his hand, when they put a Lee Enfield rifle in his hand, he was a natural crack shot. And he was then trained to become a marksman and then eventually he became a battalion sniper. And he carried out sniping activities up on that sector around Levante during that winter of 1915-16. In the march to the Somme, he had his sniper rifle taken off of him, sent back to an infantry platoon. And when they got down to Mamet's Wood, he took parts in the fighting there. Now, in the initial attack on the 7th of July 1916, when in a not a very well-planned assault, the men of the South Wales Borders and the Welsh Regiment went up over the high ground from Danzig Alley trenches north of uh, Mamet's village into that long valley that ran along the edge of the wood, which quickly became called Death Valley as the German machine guns played across the lines of men that tried to advance there and cut them down. Albert Chesters stood back and watched that attack, and he, he said that they, the Germans had machine guns on platforms up in the trees that played merry hell with the ranks of men that went forward, and he said it was just a bloodbath. So with that attack a failure, the wood was heavily bombarded. They used uh, phosphorus shells at one point, which set parts of the wood on fire. He always remembered seeing sections of the wood in flames and smoke rising from them. And then on the 10th of July, his brigade, which had the Royal Welsh Fusilier battalions in it, were then sent up and they attacked the southern tip of the wood and then fought their way through it. And when we look at the fight in Mamet's Wood, it's not trench warfare. We've just had an episode on trench warfare, but this is not trenches. There are pretty much no proper trenches within the wood itself. Some recent archaeological work found and discovered and excavated some trenches within it, but there was not a network of trenches in the same way that there was in the front of the village of Mametz or in front of the village of Montauban, and indeed on other parts of the Western Front. So what it was really was a battle of tree to tree, smash tree to smash tree, ride to ride, because this was a bit of woodland most of them on the Somme before the war were owned by the descendants of French aristocracy and the wood was used 
for hunting, uh, for foresting, and also for the pleasure of somebody from a local chateau to come for a ride, quite literally in a pony and trap, through the rides, the lanes cut through the wood. And so the advance followed those rides from ride to ride going south to north and eventually four days later after the attack on the 10th of July the Welshmen emerged on the far side of the woods Mamet's wood was in their hands but at the costs in the battle of well over 5,000 casualties from the Welsh division. Albert Chesters had found himself in the southern part of the wood and his platoon had been pinned down by a German sniper he recognised that it was a, a sniper playing Merry Hell with them as they tried to move forward. He didn't have a sniper's rifle, so a Lee Enfield rifle with a scope on it, but he tried to stalk the German sniper and at one point thought he was about to try and take a shot at him, tried to position himself around the side of a tree but exposed one of his knees sticking out from the side of the tree, which the Germans saw, fired a shot, and the bullet took his kneecap off. And that was Albert Chester's out of the Battle of Mamet's Wood. He crawled back through the shattered undergrowth within the wood to the edge of the wood where the stretcher bearers were working, got himself to a regimental aid post and was evacuated back. And that was his war over. He was discharged the following year in 1917, went back home to Wrexham, back down underground, back into the pit and remained there until he retired. An incredible man, absolutely incredible man, who very kindly prompted by my visit, sat down and wrote in a little notebook his memoirs of the Great War, which he very kindly sent me a copy. So like I said, when I think back to some of these veterans I knew, they gave me so much, so much that I can now relate to you through the medium of this podcast. But I hope, to a certain degree, I gave something back to them and it enabled them to come to terms with some of the things that they'd seen, even if that was only in a small way. So Mamet's Wood was the baptism of fire of the Welsh division, of all those Kitchener's battalions of the Welsh regiment, the South Wales Borderers and the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, and with over 5,000 casualties killed, wounded and missing there, with a very high proportion of men whose bodies were never recovered from the tangled undergrowth of the battlefield and whose names are now listed on the Thiepval Memorial to the Missing, this was the Welsh division's one of their most costly assaults, costly battles of the war. But all there was to commemorate it for many, many years was a plaque on the wall of the church in the rebuilt Mamets village. And then in the 80s, that group of Welsh veterans that I mentioned, which included a gentleman called Tom Price, who had fought in the battle for the wood, thought that there should be something more permanent. And that led to the construction of the incredible bronze red dragon that now overlooks Death Valley with barbed wire clasped in its claws, a fearsome looking beast looking out towards where the attack went in and perhaps one of the most affecting memorials put on the battlefields in recent times. So Mamet's Wood was the area where the Welsh division was fighting and the capture of Mamet's Wood on the 14th of July gave way to the next assault towards the next area of woodland up towards the village of Bazantan le Petit and that's where we'll be next. The village of Bazantin le Petit, Little Bazantin, was actually the larger of the two Bazantin villages. Bazantin le Grand was really not much more than a hamlet. And these formed parts of the German defence line in this next area of the battlefield. There was a defined trench position that ran through here, 
and this was the area attacked on the 14th of July 1916 in the so-called Dawn Attack, two weeks into the Battle of the Somme, and new approaches to the fighting were being tried out. The 1st of July, we attacked in broad daylight. Partly that was because we were attacking alongside our French allies who were not trained to attack in the darkness. So that time of day, that zero hour, was dictated by them. For this attack on the 14th of July, the Corps commander, General Congreve, had gone to Rawlinson and said he wanted to try this plan out. Rawlinson was fearful that an operation like this, where large numbers of units would advance in the dark, would not really be achievable on Salisbury Plain in peacetime. But Congreve was insistent, so he went to Haig. And Haig, despite the many criticisms of him as Commander-in-Chief, was always good at trying to give people the opportunity to come up with new approaches. We see that with the development of the Machine Gun Corps. We see that with the development of tanks, both of which grew under Haig's command. So Congreve was given the green light to try this attack, and it was the first proper time that you see what can be described as a creeping barrage being used to protect the troops as they move forward and neutralise the German positions as they approach them. Now, it was still in its infancy at this stage of the Battle of the Somme, at this stage of the Great War, and it wasn't something that we invented, really, but despite the fact that there was the risk that shells would drop short when men were attacking that close to a bombardment and drop onto the attacking troops causing friendly fire casualties it really heralded a new approach to the combination the cooperation between artillery and infantry that would then just increase over the course of the next couple of years leading to those really modern battles that were fought in the last hundred days of the great war so the combination of attacking in the half-light of dawn with enough light to see what you were doing and enough darkness to protect you, a creeping barrage, a greater concentration of heavy artillery, the 14th of July 1916 dawn attack was a very successful operation. The line from near the village of Contau-Maison across to Bazentin, both Bazentin-le-Petit and Bazentin-le-Grand, the high grounds west of the village of Longueval, the village of Longueval itself, that was all captured in this advance so the line was pushed forward quite dramatically in that one day a great comparison really a great contrast to what had happened two weeks before on most parts of the Somme weapons of the old world of fighting were still apparent though the cavalry came up the Deccan horse and the dragoon guards who we mentioned in a previous podcast moved up as part of that assault to try and exploit that advance so what we might think that perhaps cavalry is outdated and out of place on these battlefields actually if it was used correctly it could be put to good effect and, and here the cavalry charged across the open fields just to the east of bazentin le petit towards the next bit of woodland high wood and they captured the approaches and the ground around that but the infantry who would actually have to hold the ground that they had captured cavalry because of its horses couldn't sustain holding that ground indefinitely the infantry was too far back and that success was not exploited and again this was all part of how the army began to learn where to place its troops so when situations like this did arise and there was some success you could properly exploit it and push the line forward perhaps even more. At one point during their move up to, to get ready for the cavalry assault across that ground towards High Wood, those cavalry units passed a road junction just east of the village of Bazentin-le-Petit, 
where the road went off to the right to the smaller hamlet of Bazentin le Grand and continued straight on towards the village of Longueval. And on that road junction, overlooking it, was a calvary, a figure of Christ, a wrought iron figure of Christ on a cross surrounded by some trees. And this had already taken a bit of battle damage. Now, obviously, it wasn't targeted, but shells would fall often quite randomly in some places, and things like this would get damaged or destroyed. But that position, marked on the maps as Crucifix Corner, became part of the battlefield and a place that many men who served there remembered because it was a route up to the front line for the battles around High Wood. It was in an area, because of the sloping nature of the ground here, that slopes away from where High Wood is, it was a place of safety. So you could move up above ground level here without having to be in the trenches, and aid posts were set up in front of the crucifix to receive the wounded coming back. And David Ralton, who was an army chaplain, who was here later in the battle with the 47th London Division Territorials, he was here with the medics while they were treating the wounded, and he was there to give comfort to the wounded and assistance to the dying. And when soldiers died, he would he carried a little Union flag in his pocket, in his tunic pocket, and he would lay that over the body as a mark of respect. And that flag would eventually drape the coffin of the unknown warrior when it was brought from France to Westminster Abbey for burial in the years after the Great War. Incredibly, the crucifix is still there to this day. Again, surrounded by trees, that figure of Christ still stands on a wrought iron crucifix, his foot and part of his body damaged by shrapnel. Just a simple thing, really, but this incredible echo of events that took place here in 1916. Just to the west of Bazentin village was Bazentin Wood, close to the road between Bazentin and Pozières. And at this point, this probably marks one of the most forward positions of the British advance on the 14th of July 1916. They were facing ground that would not be captured for another couple of weeks, by which time the Australians arrived and took Pozières village. And the ground between the wood and Pozières village was a hotly contested bit of ground over the course of the next couple of months. But the Leicester's Brigade, the 110th Brigade, comprising the 6th, 7th, 8th and 9th Battalions of the Leicestershire Regiment, in many respects the Leicestershire POWs, took part in the attack here and they were detailed to enter Bazentan Wood and hold it against counter-attacks until relieved. And this is a story we hear a lot about. We're going to talk about a similar one with the South Africans at Delville Wood. But the story of the Leicesters here at Bazentan Wood is not so well known. But we do have a very, very good account of it. There's a fantastic memoir of the Great War by I.L. Reed, R-E-A-D, that's the posh way of spelling it, not like mine. But that Reed, like this Reed, was a Sussex boy. He was born in Eastbourne. And when the war broke out, he was on an apprenticeship in Leicester. And instead of coming back home to Sussex to join the Royal Sussex Regiment, he enlisted in his local battalion of the Leicestershire Regiment and joined the Leicester Powell's battalions. And he fought with them in the Battle of Bazentan Wood. Now, many years later, he wrote up his accounts of the war and he was quite a talented artist and he did a lot of sketches connected with it. And the material that he produced, both his artwork and his memoirs and everything else, is in the Lidl collection at the University of Leeds. But it was published as a memoir in the 1990s. It's now been reprinted by Pen and Sword Books, and I'll put a link to it on the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk. 
the book is of those we loved and it is an incredibly detailed incredibly moving tale of him joining up his life before the war him joining up in leicester and then coming across to the western front he took part in a truce with the 73rd hanoverians near monchio bois not to be confused with monchi le preux arras monchio bois was north of gomacor on the way up to arras and his unit took part in a truce with the 73rd hanoverians which included the soldier writer who went on to become a soldier writer ernst junger so again it's a book that ties junger's work to a british account in a particular place on the battlefields but he then moved down to take part in the main battle of the somme and this is an extract from his account of the fighting at Bassentan Wood for the aftermath of it, what it meant when the battle was over. We watched a fatigue party bringing up our rations, dumping piles of bulging sandbags on the ground near us, and this set us running through the names of our mates we knew already to be killed, wounded or missing. Both of us had lost all our best pals, and we sat there with leaden hearts, lost in our thoughts. Eventually, my pal Jackie broke the silence. Plenty of rations tonight, Dick, nodding towards the pile. Enough for the whole battalion, eh? About six times too many, he added bitterly. Christ, there we hell to pay in Leicester and Loughborough and Colville and Melton and Uppingham when they know about this. The Leicester Brigade, eh? Bloody well wiped out, and he trailed off into silence again, immersed in his thoughts. And it was a costly battle for those Leicester lads. It's something that I aim to return to. I'm going to do a separate podcast on Bazentan Wood further down the line. But for those Leicester battalions that got into Bazentan Wood and indeed held it against those attacks and it became part of the new front line established after the assault on the 14th of July, it was a costly battle as Reed's account hints at. When you add the casualties up of the four battalions, the 6th, 7th, 8th and 9th battalions of the Leicestershire Regiment, you get very close to nearly 2,000 casualties amongst those four battalions. The 6th and the 7th losing over 500 men each, and the 8th and the 9th losing over 400. So for them it was a, a devastating battle, and a lot of the original members of those battalions were killed or wounded. And as Reid hints at with listing the names of those places around Leicester, just like in other parts of the UK when POWs units went into action, it had a terrible effect on entire communities. So from Bazentan, we'll go past Crucifix Corner down into the next village of Longoval to look at our third and final story of woodland for this episode, and that's at Delville Wood. The village of Longoval was captured in that attack on the 14th of July 1916 by units of the 9th Scottish Division. This was the very first Kitchener's Army New Army Division to be formed in the Great War. It was part of what was known as the first 100,000, the first 100,000 men to join that new army in the initial phase of the war. It had taken part in the Battle of Luz in September 1915 when it had suffered devastating casualties in the attack on the Hohenzollern Redoubt on the opening phase of that battle. Such heavy casualties that quite a few of its battalions had to eventually be disbanded and one of the brigades was then replaced by the South African Brigade which was made up of four battalions of South African infantry, the 1st, 2nd, 3rd and 4th South African infantry. These were drawn from South African and Rhodesian volunteers 
who had served in militia-type units in the fighting in Africa in the initial stages of the Great War and then been brought together into essentially what was like a, a South African expeditionary force that had been sent to the Western Front. And it joined them in the approach to the Battle of the Somme, acclimatised to trench warfare as part of the division up in northern France and just across the border close to Plug Street Wood, which we've looked at a recent episode uh, of the podcast, and then came down to take part in the attack here. And, and in the assault on the 14th of July, the Scottish brigades of the division took the village and the South Africans then passed through them to go into the woodland beyond. And the woodland here was the Bois d'Elville, a large area of park woodland close to the site of a chateau with rides cut through it, again to enable the owner of the chateau to take a pony and trap and go off through the wood. There would have been hunting in the wood before the war. It was all part of the chateau estates that existed in this area of northern France. Prior to the Battle of the Somme, this had been behind the German lines. Longueval was a, a billeting village behind the fronts in the sector around Montauban and across towards the German defences around the village of, uh, of Hardicourt. That ground had been captured in the opening phase. The Germans had been pushed back to this area and Delville Wood had been a, a bivouac area prior to the Battle of the Somme for German troops. There were no trenches in it. Again, a bit of woodland where the Germans had not constructed any defences within it. So on the 14th of July, when the South African Brigade, commanded by Brigadier General Lukin, moved up to make their assault on the wood, they passed through the rubble and the damaged buildings of the village and their Scottish comrades who captured that ground and they entered the wood just beyond the tip of the village and made their way into the grounds around the rides and the trees. Now, the wood had taken a bit of punishment from British bombardments it wasn't at this stage smashed to bits in the same way that Mamet's wood had been with the second attack on the wood by the Welsh division. And Lukin's orders were, were quite simple. Go into the wood, take the wood and hold it against attacks until relieved. So yet again, like the Leicester's uh, Bazentown wood, it was a case of hold until relieved. So Lukin sent his troops into the woods. There were no Germans left in it at this stage. They moved up through the wood itself to the far edge he dug in on the edge of the wood in the areas where he pretty much reckoned that the direction of German counterattacks would come from. So that was the direction of the village of Fleurs one way and the village of Jeanchy Ginchy the other way. And indeed, he was proved right. Over the course of the next six days, the 3,500 South African troops that had marched into Delville Wood were gradually pushed back to a small pocket in the area around where the visitor centre is today, for example, and the car park and the little keeper's lodge, they were holding that bit of ground, and after six days of fighting, they were relieved by the next British units coming in. And of those 3,500 that had marched in there on the 14th of July, just over 750 marched out. So this became the greatest place of loss of South African troops in their involvement in the battles of the Great War on the Western Front. And after the war, it became the main focus of South African remembrance. The South Africans didn't wait for the wood to be donated to them, they purchased it. And the wood by that stage, and I'll put a, a picture of the wood during the war so you can see an idea of what the conditions within the wood was like. But when the South African government came here to make this a memorial site, Delville Wood was a, a matchstick wood, effectively. After the battles of 1916 and the fighting in this area twice in 1918, very little was left. 
the undergrowth was returning, the saplings of trees that had naturally reseeded were beginning to return, but it would take some years before it resembled a wood again. One tree had survived, and that tree is still there to this day, now marked and protected. And jumping on to the 1980s, the South African government added a museum to the site as well, which has been expanded upon during the Great War centenary period. And it is a site well worth visiting. And we're not going to do really much justice to the entire story of Delville Wood in this episode, because again, it will necessitate a proper visit and a proper episode to tell that story in its entirety. But with the South Africans' six days in the wood and another phase of this battle of the horseshoe of woodland that had taken the British army from success on the 1st of July, the exploitation of the German line on the 14th of July with the the dawn attack, this was signalling the new phase of the battle. Some woods were taken quickly, others had taken a week or so like Mamet's wood, but woods like High Woods and here at Delville Wood would see the fight continue not just for weeks, but for months. For two months, Delville Wood would change hands, tree after tree, ride after ride, trench dug through those smashed positions, would change hands almost on a daily basis, and that's when it got its reputation as Devil's Wood amongst the troops that served here. And the South African story dominates the site today because of the memorial, because of the museum, because of the nature of the site and who preserved it. But it was a battle for two months involving regiment and battalion after battalion after battalion of the British Army. Unit after unit was pushed through here, unit after unit suffered terrible casualties in the fighting amongst the trees. I've been lucky to stay in the Keeper's Lodge at Dillville Wood on quite a few occasions over the years. And it's quite something at night to go out into the wood. Some people probably would perceive a degree of fear by doing this. What ghosts walk amongst that ground, they might ask. But it is a place where nature has returned. There are owls in the trees. There's deer wandering amongst the rides of the modern wood. The world, the ground, has recovered. The terrible hand of war, the power of man had devastated this ground in 1916, but nature had reclaimed it, reclaimed this part of the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.